This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, as you know, a sobering morning. We awakened to news of another deadly terrorist attack, this time in New Zealand, and portions of which were broadcast live on social media. The digital platforms apparently enlisted in the shooting, really highlighting a distinctly 21st century dimension of mass gun violence. It's one shore that uh, will put pressure on social media companies already under scrutiny. We want to talk a little bit about that. That's kind of one of the angles that we are following here at Bloomberg. Emily Chang is host of Bloomberg Technology on Bloomberg Television. She joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Uh, Emily, um, a tragedy, no doubt about that. And we have been thinking, especially with on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week magazine is a, is a story about Facebook and trying to figure out how much they have changed things in terms of policing the content that gets on their platform. How, what are you hearing about this? Well, Facebook will tell you they have hired thousands and thousands of people to police this content, to take it down, in addition to artificial intelligence tools that are supposed to be able to identify these things in the moment. But clearly, Facebook's artificial intelligence did not identify the live stream of this shooting, and it went on for 17 minutes. And, you know, we don't know what the human moderators were doing at that time, but Facebook found out about this from New Zealand police, and only after that did they then take it down. And, of course, that's not the only problem. It's once they took it down, the video was reposted on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and these services, these platforms simply could not keep up. And so what do they do? I mean, you talk to some of the smartest people in Silicon Valley every day, Emily, and there's clearly not a solution that's obvious and yet it does feel like we're at a moment where the public lawmakers regulators are going to be clamoring for some sort of response look there is an ongoing debate in silicon valley about what should go online at all what counts as free speech what counts as extremism you know it's really easy to say this is a violent video we should take it down it's a lot less easy to say some of these you know videos that might promote hate promote Uh, racism, it's a lot more difficult to draw the line there. And so, you know, some would say these platforms shouldn't be allowing any videos that traverse into this territory at all, you know, in the way that these platforms have been designed to prioritize free speech, to prioritize the, the public discourse, that in itself has enabled this to happen, has in fact rewarded extreme and bad behavior on the internet. You know, if you post something hateful on Twitter, it gets, you know, retweeted and, 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 and you know, sent around. And, and in, in a way, that bad behavior gets rewarded. And so there's, you know, some would argue a completely misaligned incentive structure in terms of what these companies have prioritized in, in, the, in the building of these platforms and what right. might be healthy for public discourse. Emily, it also makes me wonder, I'm just thinking as a platform, you know, when things like this are happening, they're top of the news around the world. You know, 
what's working internally or what's going on internally at Facebook? To me, that would be, okay, let's quickly, you know, folks, let's figure out what's going on along this front. And it makes me wonder that they're just not on top of things. You know, the technological optimist would, would tell you that in an ideal world, technology should be able to do this. Technology clearly right. is not ready to do this. So at this point, they say we've got a combination of human beings and a combination of tech and artificial intelligence tools that should be able to do this together. But in this case, both of those things fail, not only in the moment, but in the aftermath. And and for several hours, it was quite Mm -hmm. easy to find this video and related videos on these platforms. And so you're right that what they have in place isn't working. It's not necessarily because of what they have in place. It's more likely because of how these platforms have been designed and built in the first place and the values that they have been built on. Well, and I'm also curious about with the news yesterday of Facebook losing another senior executive. Uh, and some of the reporting has talked about Mark Zuckerberg kind of consolidating his power there at Facebook. Is that a good thing in terms of better policing of Facebook's platform? I think it depends on the execution. And Chris Cox leaving is clearly a a big deal. He was part of Mark Zuckerberg's inner circle. He has been by Mark Zuckerberg's side for 13 Mm -hmm. years. And he is responsible for many of the product decisions that Facebook has made for good and for ill. And so I do find it promising that Maybe there's there's new leadership at Facebook. He's he's promoted some some fresh faces. There's a woman now who is running the Facebook app in particular, and you know maybe Facebook does need to dramatically shake things up in order to really rethink, you know what is important and what what does Facebook itself want to stand for. And you do wonder, Emily, and I'm guessing you have some insights into this as well, what this means as you sort of trickle down more into the startup scene, what's getting funded, how those companies are being managed, because Silicon Valley companies are growing up in in a different world in, in many ways. The next generation of entrepreneurs have to be more aware of these issues than maybe the current heads of the biggest companies. Absolutely. And, you know, I think privacy and digital privacy is one of the biggest issues of our time. And I mean, you both know that I care deeply about diversity. And and I think that diversity in the people who are building these products is is, actually plays a huge role in, um, you know, the actual product result. And I think if there had been more women and minorities and and people who are actually victims of online harassment, victims of hate, um, you know, people who have been, you know, violated online, they have different views about digital privacy. They have different views about some of the protections and, you know, whether you want someone to know your location, right. simple things like that. And so that is why I believe that you need to have more women and minorities in the room. And I, I know that more companies are thinking about this. I know that uh, more investors are thinking about it. But again, it, it's in the execution. Right. You know, someone, someone just this morning told me that their colleagues were thinking about releasing uh, a product into the wild just to see how it worked, even though the harassment controls weren't quite ready. And she said, no, we cannot do that. We cannot do that. Emily Chang is the host of Bloomberg Technology and also uh, the author of a terrific book uh, that Mm -hmm. she is alluding to, Brotopia, which is a must read and really underscores the whole velocity of social media. It's the day for the wearing of the green. 
Brendan couldn't help himself there in the control room. Uh, Well, as we talked about, it is the most wonderful time of the year. And this is a big holiday, obviously, in New York City. We always celebrate in the special relationship, obviously, between New York uh, and Ireland. And Ireland very much in the Mm -hmm. center of so much geopolitically, especially at this moment, which is why we're especially happy to have Martin Shanahan, Chief Executive Officer of IDA Ireland. He's based over in Dublin, but here with us in New York City. Martin, great to see you. Great Thanks to be for here. stopping by. Thank you for having me. Uh, you were down in Washington uh, before this, and obviously this is an important time for the Taoiseach, your prime minister, and for the Irish economy as we navigate through Brexit. we got to start there. It's the top of the list in terms of where you sit in the European economy and the global economy. Help us understand how Ireland is affected at this moment by all this uncertainty. Great. Happy to do that. But I should say before I do that, that it was great to be in Washington yesterday. It was great to be in the White House. Uh, you know, Irish Taoiseach, Irish prime ministers have presented Shamrock to the president of the United States since 1952, which I really think uh, shows and demonstrates the strength of the relationship right. between the two countries. In terms of Brexit, um, as you know, you know, um, the UK people voted in June 2016 to leave the European Union. Uh, we very much regret that, uh, but we respect the will of the British people. Uh, two years on, uh, you know, EU and UK have uh, spent two years negotiating a leave agreement. Um, the uh, British government has been unable to get Parliament in the UK to ratify that agreement. We believe that that is the best way for the UK to exit the European uh, Union uh, if they wish to exit. Um, at the moment, quite a lot of uncertainty. What we're absolutely certain about is the fact that Ireland will remain within the European Union. Mm-hmm. It will, we will continue uh, to work with our European neighbours, the uh, other 27. We want the UK to have an orderly uh, exit or Brexit, as we uh, refer to it. And we want the UK to have as close a trading relationship with the uh, European Union after that. Um, we Do you don't expect that's likely, though, considering uh, how the negotiations have gone so far and we're not over? No, I mean, I think we, ha- we have to acknowledge that we're within two weeks of the 29th of March, and as yet we do not know what is going to happen. We do not uh, as yet know how the UK plan to reconcile the fact that, on the one hand, uh, the UK Parliament uh, has been unable to ratify the agreement that we've spent two years negotiating, and where there has been already concessions. They have voted um, uh, and expressed an intent that they don't wish to leave without uh, a deal. As you know, yesterday they voted... Uh, to seek an extension. Right. So there are a lot of moving parts at the moment. I want to go back though, to what Jason said. Like, Have you seen any impact to Ireland specifically as a result of these two years of negotiations? We had one of our reporters who's saying this could go on for a couple more years. So I'm curious, what impact specifically have you guys already seen, okay. if any? Okay, so I, I think there, uh, in terms of impact we've already seen, we've seen investment flow into Ireland. Right. Um, so You uh, guys have been a net winner so yeah. far. Yeah, well, like. well, well, I think we need to be careful with net winner because I think the the, the negative impact is yet to come, yes. to be honest. So, but, Fair. But, 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 but to date, But yes, nobody's left. We, but no, we, we've benefited to date. And I actually, uh, earlier this morning, I updated some figures which said that, you know, there's 70 companies identifiably have made investments into Ireland over the, the past 24 months uh, with about 
over 5,000 jobs associated wow. with those. Um, you know, the last, uh, last year was one of the best years we've ever had for foreign direct investment. We have seen particularly that in the financial services sector, where you have companies like Barclays, like um, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, moving you know, um, their European um, banking headquarters to uh, Dublin. We've seen... From, from London from, specifically? From, from London. Uh, yeah. We've seen, you know, companies like um, S&P Global Ratings moving mm-hmm. into Dublin. We've seen um, uh, companies in insurance, reinsurance funds, all setting up either new entities or expanding their existing entities. We've also seen that in um, life sciences, in the pharmaceutical sector, in the medical technology sector. Because you need market authorization, you need um, qualified person sign-off, and Ireland provides that. We provide access to the European market, and we will continue to provide access to the European market. We just have about 40 seconds left here. What's so important about, as these negotiations go on, and the EU has been pretty firm, like, here, this is the deal, but what do you think the EU needs to make sure that kind of the UK is left with, um, you know, in, in terms of abilities to do things and conduct business? What's important that you think the EU give in on? Yeah, I mean, I think the EU has already negotiated an agreement where there have been concessions. And I think we we all believe that the UK having a close relationship with Europe after Brexit is hugely important because these are two strong trading blocks. But there are also, um, you know, it's the UK who's decided it wants to be outside of the uh, single market. It wants to be outside of the customs But nobody union. is nobody benefits if the UK is really kind of beaten up so much economically or business-wise, right? And, and nobody's in the, I think yeah. it's in nobody's interest that the UK is beaten up but we also have to be realistic that a deal that has taken two years to negotiate uh, by both sides you know our expectation is that that is as good as we're going to get for now yeah right it's fascinating so interesting much more to come uh, and we always love checking in with you martin shanahan chief executive officer of ida ireland based in dublin but here with us in new york city So what Moneyball did for baseball, Action Network is hoping to do for sports betting overall, including the office pool. It's kind of timely with March Madness. It is here. Joining us now to talk about it is uh, Patrick Keane. He is CEO of the Action Network and our global business reporter, Ira Boudway, who wrote about uh, all of this in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Magazine. So first of all, Patrick, welcome. Nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing. Yeah, I think you started to summarize it pretty well. At the Action Network, we ambitiously, to give you a plug, like to think of ourselves as the Bloomberg of sports wagering, <laughs> data, content, and information. You can't trade in our platform. You can't bet, but it's to inform users and inform consumers how to make better decisions and become a better better. Well, and this obviously opened up in part, and you guys saw it uh, as this decision, this seminal Supreme Court decision happened last summer, you were poised to essentially take advantage of the fact that now we don't all have to go to Vegas or we don't have to do anything shady. There are many places in the United States where we can legally wager. That's a game changer, pun intended. It certainly is. Uh, With the Professional and Amateur Sports Act being turned over last year, it's coming up on a year almost now, so legal in eight states today. We think 15 by the end of this year and maybe as many as 30 next year. So the tailwinds behind the opportunity for consumers to bet is there. I mean, there are 67 games in the NCAA tournament, so there's a lot of fertile opportunity there. And we want to be the place that you come to help make those decisions. With you guys, you know, 
that as that opportunity grows, you want to focus on the legal markets only. You and I talked about this. What's the critical mass of legal markets? You know, eight is big, but it's still kind of fractured. They don't all have mobile. If you look at like really New Jersey, Nevada are the only ones of any size right now. How many do you guys feel like you need where there's robust mobile bedding? It's not necessarily the number of states. It's really the how large the populations are going to be within those states. So to look at New Jersey, I mean, every weekend, every evening, every sports book in Jersey City and Hoboken becomes a de facto sports book. So that perimeter of the tri-state area here around New York is massive. When you get into places like Massachusetts, Illinois, we think those are coming soon. But you raised a key point. New York is going to be a pivotal state, and it needs to be mobile. Mobile is the opportunity for these to be big businesses. And there's something about getting the casual better to actually kind of get into this officially. I mean, that's a big leap, potentially. It is, but in some ways you could argue that fantasy is, is maybe the gateway drug for people to do this. And the gateway being 65, 70 million users in the U.S. play fantasy, and they get and are able to understand fantasy as something. So to educate and get those users to learn and do prop betting where they can actually bet on Do you players. think you can get all of those people, 65 I, to 70 million? I, I do. I, and it might be ambitious, and we want them to be sensible about how they bet, but I think you can turn every sports fan into a better. This weekend, as it starts for March Madness, there's going to be 10 tens, hundreds of millions of people filling out brackets on Sunday night. And we want to be a place where people come to make those decisions. But we want people to be responsible. But it just makes the games more fun. If you look at millennials, kids that are younger than that, they have action on everything. So we think we're hitting the market at the right time. I tell my team often we're a moment in time kind of business. And this is a pivotal moment in time, unlike anything I've seen in the sports industry in my 20-year career. Well, and help us understand sort of how you get people in because you've made some big hires, especially on sort of the media side. Darren Ravel, I think, being the number one in that regard, a name well-known to a lot of people in the sports world and the sports business world. Help us understand how the sort of the funnel works, as it were. Absolutely. So when you look at users are often doing natural searches, they come to us through Google most often. It's still the, the gateway to content on the internet. We see that. But we have an app and a great product team that has built an amazing app. And the technology that underlays what we've built, I think, is incredibly important. So it's a combination of search, great marketing. I've, I worked at Google for many years, and I sort of played against and within the Google Facebook duopoly. And I like not being in an ads business. We are a subscription platform, so we mm-hmm. want to do everything to deliver a user into our award-winning app that has great data, great tools, and great science around how to be a better better. For March Madness in particular, you know, that's not really typical betting behavior, filling out a bracket. It's sort of betting-like, but it's not what real heavy bettors typically do. What are you guys offering to kind of get people in and then show them the other ways that they can you know, participate in this kind of behavior. Yeah, maybe not traditional in that right. sense, but there are 67 games. There's right. probably more of a volume of opportunity and the breadth of opportunity to gamble in this tournament. So we create what we call betting guides, and those betting guides are in-depth information and data where we make calls and make recommendations. This isn't a tout service. We're not having people, you know, pay us individually to get game information. This is just part of your normal subscription inside the product, and we want to inform all of those users. But at the same time, if you want to win the first and second rounds, you want to win every subsequent round, we want people to stay in through the life cycle of a pretty long fortnight when people are involved in this tournament. We're talking with Patrick Keene, CEO at the Action Network, along with our Ira Boudway, global business reporter at Bloomberg News and our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What's the velocity of usage already? Like, if, if people are filling out their brackets Sunday night, I'm assuming if you're getting people interested in using it, they've got to be on the platform already. Are you seeing that? And if so, how much? Yeah, we see a couple of million users a month. 
month that are coming through our platform today. Uh, and our subscriber account, it's a private number, but it's it's growing considerably as more and more people want this kind of content. Has it picked up as we get closer to filling out the brackets? It has. We had our biggest day in terms of downloads yesterday in the history of the company. The biggest, you know, I jokingly tell my team the Super Bowl is our Super Bowl. A lot of businesses like to say a certain time of year is their Super Bowl. We happen to have a Super Bowl three weeks later, and that's March Madness, yeah. which is infinitely bigger for us as a betting platform, and it's a longer cycle of betting. So we every any, any business of our size that wants to be a big business, every week has to be bigger than the previous one. And I think another interesting thing that we're seeing is there are other sports verticals that people are betting in, like golf. Golf was never a big business in terms of betting, mm-hmm. but it's exploded over the last few wow. years. It's really easy to bet golf. Yeah, so yeah. That's fine. right. Right. So I want to ask you just to broaden slightly. We only have about a minute or so left, minute and a half. You know, you've had such a fascinating career and you've alluded to this. You worked at Google. You were also in the board or still in the board of Gimlet, which was sold to Spotify, I believe, sort of the big deal in, in podcasting world. You were on the board of Bleacher Report. You've seen this from lots of different angles. Where are we at this moment in terms of where media goes next? I feel like you've come at it from all different angles. I jokingly say that every single media company in the world has a tiger team in a conference room with a code name with six people from McKinsey in it (laughs) trying to figure out what to do with sports betting. That same conference room is at every league, and we talk to all of them. I've literally been in these meetings. So I think if you're a smart media property league owner, you have a big strategy to play in this category, to play in it responsibly, to play in it legally. And we think we're the ultimate media partner for all of those leagues, teams, and organizations. 30 seconds left. What's the challenge? What's the big challenge right now? The challenge, I think, is education. Gambling in sports is often a little confusing. Mm. So what is a plus minus? What's an over under? So gambling education, betting education is a big investment that we're making because we want people to be comfortable and not intimidated when they bet. Fascinating. We'll come back and give us an update on the business. Thank you. Down the road. Patrick Keene, Chief Executive Officer of the Action Network in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with our Ira Boudway, Global Business Reporter at Bloomberg News. Do check out his story. It's in the current issue of Bloomberg Bag, uh, Bloomberg Business Week magazine, which is currently on newsstands, also at uh, Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. So, kind of started our story, to our story, rather started our week talking about Boeing, and we're wrapping up our week talking about Boeing as well. Right now, though, the stock is up about 1.5%. This following a report, a news report, that a software upgrade for the 737 MAX would roll out soon. Lots still going on on this story. Let's get an update, find out where we are. George Ferguson has been following it for us. He's Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's joining us from RBI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, George, good to be back with you. So what's the latest when it comes to Boeing and the investigations into those plane crashes. Yeah, thanks, Carol. So um, I think this particular software fix is probably the, the most interesting uh, news lately. And I think uh, if it's the software fix I've heard about, mm-hmm. it's going to go to multiple sensors, I think, before it institutes this this nose push over to keep the airplane from stalling. I guess as, as we think about it, I'm not sure that, that this is going to be the absolute fix, given that... Um, we kind of know that the sensor was a problem on the Lion Air flight, but we don't know that the sensor was a, a problem on the Ethiopian Air flight. And it seems like once this program is um, 
is instituted once it starts to push the nose over. Pilots are having a hard time controlling the airplane and getting getting the system shut off. And some of the complaints we've heard from pilots is just that this system is is onerous to use. It it um, it, it requires pilot uh, focus at a time in the flight when uh, they're, they're low to the ground. They're in takeoff. They're already taxed uh, heavily in the cockpit. And I, and I think this MCAS system was was introduced into the airplane because the center of gravity changed in the airplane. And so, uh, you know, Boeing was trying to counter some of the changes they made to the new Max. And so, I guess one of the other things we'll have to figure out is, are the flying char- characteristics, um, I don't know, you know, still as good as a 737NG with this software change? So, um, it's um, it'd be interesting to see. I'm not totally sure it's the absolute fix yet. So, George, I, you follow this industry so closely. Help us understand, as Carol said, we're sort of wrapping up a, a very important week for this company and candidly for people who fly and, and airlines and all of this. Put this in context, what we've seen. It, it feels like people acted very quickly. The U.S. actually f- lagging uh, other countries and, and other regulators here. As you put this into historical context in terms of its importance for this company, its importance for the airline industry, where do you come out? I think this is extremely important um, for the industry and for the company. Uh, You know, the 737 is is Boeing's um, most profitable airplane, highest uh, contributor to revenue, highest contributor to operating profit. Um, It'll be – it's the size of airplane that is – the most in use around the world, you know, roughly 150 to 170 seater in, in fleets around the world. Um, you, you know, and again, I think we're, we have a situation where, where Boeing has moved some of the, the dynamics around in it that changes center of gravity and try to use computers to a certain degree to help compensate for it. And, and this is one of those, I guess, unintended consequences. I'm kind of also surprised that um, that there wasn't more done on the software and the sensors after the Lion Air crash. Yeah. Well, and I'm confused too because this plane's been, as you as you said, flying in fleets around the world, lots of flights. Is it just when there's a software problem, or I'm I'm confused. Is it the the, the software itself is not working right or was there a bug in some software that made a few flights have problems i mean have other flight other pilots said we had some problems but we we've we worked it out like i'm trying to understand because it's been flying up in the air for a while Uh, agreed and i think you you know at the at the first crash we heard some noise from pilots unions in the united states and in the second crash now we've heard a lot more noise from pilots unions, I shouldn't say noise, um, concerns, mm-hmm. which is, and important concerns. Um, and they're, say, again, saying that they're taxed at, at important times in the flight, um, and it's not always clear how to get the system shut off. I seem to think it's it's not just a, a software bug. It, it may just be that... Um, that maybe you know maybe uh, training is a little more complete in some of the U.S. fleets, um, but again, even they are, are concerned about flying the airplane. So uh, I think when the airplane is acting, when the software is acting normally, um, it's a it's a bit of an onerous system to use, and that's why I'm more I'm concerned that it could it might not be the, right. the absolute fix. Hey, listen, earlier in the week when Jason and I spoke with you, you said I think they might need a clean sheet that Boeing's got to do a whole brand new design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you still feel that way? You just got about thirty seconds here. 
I do because, again, they change the center of gravity in this airplane. And so if they want the, the larger, more fuel-efficient engines of the future, they can't get it underneath this airframe. They need to go, they need to go start from scratch, I think, and, and build, a, build an airplane that can take those new engines. All right. Well, as we mentioned, the share price is up about 1.7% in today's trade, Jason. But, of course, we've known a lot of market cap wiped out, stock down 10% for the week overall. George Ferguson is Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst. We really appreciate all your insights. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Tom Plum is back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, based in Madison, Wisconsin, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Friday. The Plum Balance Fund, by the way, beating just about all of its peers over the past five years, returning on average annually more than 9%. Nice to have you back with us. I think that performance is known in technical terms as killing it. Yeah, exactly. Score. Thank you. Um, Well, how do you do it? Well, in that balance fund, what we do is we focus on growth with the stocks and we use our bonds just to moderate the volatility. And as long as you have good stocks and you can then become a long-term holder of good companies, I think then you've got a chance to perform. What's the split? Well, it's about 65% stocks. Okay. And so let's talk about what you're seeing there right now, because I feel like this growth versus value debate, it's finally sort of back. I mean, it, it, it was non-existent, it feels like, for, for a long time because growth was really uh, ruling the day. But, but where are we now in a market that is a little bit harder to discern? You know, we've had uh, transitions between growth and value on and off, and they usually are pretty long cycles. But I think right now we're in a world where growth is killing it. And the reason is because we have so many disruptive things. You think back to the tech bubble back 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and look at the makeup of those companies. Some of the companies that are today the leaders didn't exist back then. You know, Amazon was really nothing other than a book retailer. Uh, Facebook didn't exist. And so what you see is that right now with disruptive change coming so fast that you really don't see a reversion to the mean like you typically would see to make value work. You know, you talk about, we're talking with Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer over at Plum Funds. You talk about disruption. So it's interesting what you just said about so many of the companies that are the big kahunas in the market, in the the tech market. arena or just kind of disrupting the way we do so many things weren't necessarily around 10, 20 years ago. PayPal is a name that you like, right? Right. But it's funny. There was a story earlier in the week, um, or maybe it was last week on the Bloomberg, and it talked about one analyst coming out and said, Amazon's ability to succeed in payments is greater than investors think and is a risk to PayPal. So how come you, do you feel confident that PayPal is something that sticks around for a while? I think PayPal has – what they've done is they set up a nice 
program where they partner with companies. So there's less of increasingly a chance, so too, right? right? Right. So there's less of a chance of them made made obsolete. The other thing is that you have such a strong secular tailwind that there's going to be a lot of winners for a number of years. And uh, especially when you in look the payments arena? in the payment systems, uh, the P to P, the P to B, the B people to B. People to people, business to business, people to exactly. business. Exactly. Yeah. And right now, Venmo is really a strong player in those markets. And that's something that really didn't exist in the United States. It's basically making cash obsolete. Because if you and I go to, to want to split a bill, I can just use my Venmo and move my money to no, your account. No, I'm not account. splitting. You're going to pay for it. <laughs> no, no, no. But this it, is well, how I you know, force Carol to actually chip in her fair share when we go out to dinner. I do 50-50. I'm kidding. All right. Well, let's also talk about Disney because mm-hmm. that's a name that I feel like, especially over the last year or so with all the M&A activity, the deal-making uh, back and forth, and also, candidly, all the hits – People have been pretty bullish on that stock. Where does it go from here, though? Because they got to get that streaming business up and going, and Netflix looms large. Right. And I think, you know, with Disney, its stock hasn't really done anything for over a year. And when you look at that, you say, well, why would you invest in it now? Well, a year ago, they were losing people from ESPN, mm-hmm. and they didn't really have a solution as cable cutting was going on yeah. all the time. Now they've got their app. Now they've got the potential with Hulu, streaming, other things that they're doing. Just put all those assets. And they have content. Right. You know, they're the content king. So I think they're going to get it together. They still have to show us they can execute. But at 16 times earnings, I think it's a worthwhile bet right now. So you think the purchase of all those, those Fox assets makes sense? I think so, especially it gives them that Hulu asset, which they can – well, it looks like they'll gain control of that. Right. And then they should have the ability to use that technology with their Disney streaming. Talk to us a little bit about Adobe. Of course, they just uh, reported their earnings, a little bit of a bummer. Stock's down about 4.8% uh, in today's session. Um does it bother you? Well, uh, yeah, twenty five percent earnings growth is not enough. Uh, <laughs> that tells you a well, little bit that there were that? some expectations yeah. up there. What we saw this whole cycle is any company that had high expectations, even if they beat it, if they didn't, then give you guidance right. because so much of the street relies on exactly this guidance, even though quarter after quarter they beat the guidance right but uh but they didn't like the guidance and there was some new accounting standards that were coming in there was some integration of their merged assets their companies they've acquired recently so there's a little bit of noise and because of that i think you know you'll see the stock give back a little bit but i think they're still a grower do you buy on this dip i i think someone buying on this dip will be feeling very comfortable a year from now and uh, before we let you go, only about 30, 35 seconds left. As you look at the worries in the broader world, we talked a lot about Brexit. We're still talking a lot about U.S.-China trade. What's the thing you worry most about that could disrupt this nice market that we've seen? I think uh, we see some real early signs of some credit issues, and they're worth watching. You know, the I think we'll find out that China is going to work out, that Europe is stimulating again, that the world economy is not going to go down the tubes right this year. And in that environment, you're going to be able to make some money in stocks. You own Boeing. Yes, we do. Did you add this week? 
just quickly. Uh, yeah. You did? Yeah. Because you think longer term it's going to be, what, just fine? I think. Well, I think that they will solve it, and it's, it's something that looks like that they will solve. And when you look at the oligopoly, the ability to now generate incredible amount of free yeah. cash over the next few years. You're always a attractive. treat when you come in. We really love talking all these names with you. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks, Carol. Yeah. Tom Plum is President and Chief Investment Officer of Plum Funds. He's based in Madison, Wisconsin rooting for his alma mater as we are in the midst of March Madness. They're up right now. Against Nebraska. All right. Against Nebraska. (laughs) There you go. News you can use. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.